everyone. Welcome to Everyman BJJ, a weekly show covering MMA and BJJ news and training tips. Good afternoon, Frank. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. You look excellent. You this is I'm seeing Wall Street Wall Street Noah right now. So you're looking good, man. I know you're in you're you're in high tide for business. Business is really picking up. You're working 60, 80 hour weeks. You look good. Um, you and I were just talking off Thank camera. You. So today I want to say hello to everyone who's watching. Today we have with us once again Robert Drysdale, uh, jiu-jitsu legend, particularly a jiu-jitsu legend here in America, one of the most accomplished. Americans at Submission Grappling Jiu-Jitsu, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, uh, former winner of the ADCC Submission Grappling Absolute Division. That you know, That's a very prestigious, one of the most prestigious titles in the sport. Robert gave me my black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in June 2010. That was uh, one, of the, one of the best moments of my life. We have no photographic nor video uh, evidence of that day, which is a crime, which I should, if I could beat Robert up, I probably would over that. Like he's, it was such a surprise that we don't have any video or photo of it. It's just, it's just etched in my memory. But anyway, uh, we, we had Robert on, I think probably like within the last maybe two months ago or so we had him on, we had a great podcast with him and we had him on again because Robert just gave a TEDx talk here in Las Vegas. I, I helped Robert get that TEDx talk. I helped him write his speech. I helped him with practicing his speech. I was there at the live event. It was a big deal. Robert makes some admissions. So if you're a, if you're a fan of jiu-jitsu, if you're a fan of MMA, Robert was an MMA fighter, I believe, retired 7-0. and zero. So he didn't have a long career, but was unbeaten. A lot of first-round submission wins. He did fight in the UFC. Um, but it's... You know, if you're a fight fan, if you're a jiu-jitsu, you're going to want to watch that TEDx talk. But if even if you are not, if you're someone who's interested in the process of, hey, how do I get a TEDx talk? How do I write a TEDx talk? What's the process like, like the ups and downs, the highs and lows, the challenges, how, how, uh, how nerve-wracking it can be, right? What does that process look like? How, how do you show up on stage and be confident? and conquer your nerves. We're going to talk a lot about that today with Robert, but you're also going to want to watch it because we talk, Noah, a lot now today about authenticity. We talk about vulnerability. These words are mainstream words now. Everybody's talking about mindfulness, authenticity, uh, vulnerability. And Robert Drysdale, you know, 6'3", 240 pounds, um, a guy who's who's been, you know, in this alpha, the, one of the most alpha eco systems on earth he's been in that ecosystem he's trained in it he's a product of it and he goes on stage and he makes you know i mean he he speaks from the heart he makes some admissions if you think you know robert drysdale you probably don't know everything like life has been challenging for him too he's had he's had to go through the darkness he's had to battle with some depression he's had to battle with you know winning and then and then the 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 depression after winning, like there has to be something more. Is this all there is? If I'm winning all these medals, I'm winning world titles, I thought it would feel better. I thought it would last longer. And then, as Robert said on stage, it, beyond Robert the fighter, right? Beyond that, what's my identity? 
Like if, if fighting was taken away from me, if jujitsu was taken away from me, what's my identity? That's really the core. He talks about that transformation and, and going from just this type A athlete, ultra competitive. You and I have talked about it many times on the podcast, too. Oh, yeah. Where, where you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? You have someone like Robert and I who are just wired to be ultra competitive, who hate losing. And yet you have, um, you know, you have to deal with the fact that one day the cheering is going to stop. One day the cheering is going to stop. One day your body's going to betray you. One day you're going to slow down. One day it's time for a new generation. One day you're not what you once were. And how do you adapt? What do you do then? What, how do you recreate yourself? How do you find a new identity? How do you find purpose and meaning when all you've known, your own, that your identity has been as an athlete, as a metal chaser, you know? And so that's what the, that's what this TEDx talk uh, was about. I understand that Robert has just joined us. So we'll yeah, I'm ready to be talking about today. Good stuff. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and bring him over because uh, he's just in the green room right now. Okay. All right. We have a green, we have a green room now. Yeah, we have a green room now. So uh, I'm, Robert's been waiting uh, patiently um, over in the green room. And uh, uh, Robert, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. All right. Just to let you know, Robert, we're live. Frank, uh, Frank took the moment, a few minutes to just kind of warm up with, uh, with an introduction. And right. so um, w welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me back. Um, this is what, my third one with you guys now? Second. Second with second with me. Maybe. But, but you, did, you did one with me. You did one with me separately a while back. This is my third one with yeah. you. Four, maybe four. You right. and I may have done four together. Yes, I think this is four with Frank. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I feel like I'm sandwiched by bearded, you know, uh, Neanderthals. I feel like I should, I need to grow a beard. I feel like less of a man now today on Sunday. So that's you know it's bearded beard Sunday. It does have its advantages. Yeah. <laughs> well, Robert, I was telling I was telling everybody, you know, you and I went through that that TEDx process. What's interesting, and this I don't mean this to sound bragging, but it's kind of true. It's like of all the TEDxes out there, right? There's whatever, there's ten thousand or tens of thousands of TED or TEDx talks out there, and it is it is prestigious to get one because it's not easy. Not just not just anybody on a street corner can get a TED or a TEDx talk. So it, it is. You know, it's it's hard to get it. There's a lot that goes into it. What's interesting is when it comes to like jujitsu and the combat sports and MMA, you and I, like looking at the screen right now, we're like 50%, maybe like 40% of all the TED or TEDx talks in the world on combat sports, maybe 30%. Somewhere between 30 to 40% is like right here on these two screens, which is pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, two guys in Las Vegas that, that, that happened you to know, jiu jitsu. So it's pretty. There's, a, there's a, a, a stereotype. It's not only very inaccurate, it doesn't really do justice to the theme of fighting. Is that fighting is just purely physical and brutal and pure aggression. It is, it's primal and because it is primal, therefore it cannot be intellectual. And nothing could be further from the truth, right? So that's. I think that's one that's one reason why I think that if you dug deeper into what fighting is, you would find it to be one of the most probably the most intellectually challenging things you can ever get involved in. Like, like I have a hard time thinking of anything more complex than fighting. I really do. Like I 
I mean, when you think about the different layers that I mean, what, what the different layers you have to have in your, you know, you, you have to dig through to be able to be a good fighter. Like it's physical, it's emotional, it's technical, it's tactical. It is very, very challenging in every single way. Like, so I, I have a hard time thinking of anything that is as challenging as fighting. But for some reason, I think that this, the overall stereotype is still like Hulk smashed, right? Like you're an ogre who just knows how to break things. You can't put things together, you know, sort of thing. But I think isn't these that, TED Talk, TED Talk helps break that stereotype, perhaps. Isn't that something more like you know? Who thinks that chess is not an intellectual activity, but chess, you know, is a training board for tactical war fighting, and yeah. it, you know, that's what uh, that's what the mats are. The mats are nothing more than a game board. Um, for chess, so um, yeah, I, I I tend to think that uh, any of the martial arts is some of the most intellectually demanding activities because you you open up deeper levels of your cognitive processing on the mats uh, than anywhere else uh, in deeper forms. You know, it's it you know your body creates uh, neural pathways that are indelible at that point, you know, you, it, yeah. so it's actually the, uh, yeah, I think it's the most opposite thing. You can, you know, I think I, I could say that football or, you know, anything with bats and balls well, are the, kind of the, less. So yeah, the, the fast, the fascinating thing about wrestling, jujitsu, any combat sport is that it's a hybrid. It's a team sport, right? You need your team, you need your coaches, you need people to show up and, you know, you're helping each other. Your coaches are helping you. And then at the same time, just like wrestling, just like high school wrestling, college wrestling, you're going out there alone in the end. And so you can't hide. Like if you're on a soccer field and you're having a bad day or you got beat, a lot of times you can kind of hide. It's like, oh, the team lost. And fighting, it's like, you know, everything, when you step out there, usually everything is riding on you. So the emotional, the spiritual, the emotional, the mental challenge is like 10x of most sports because you, you know, you, you can hide a little bit in, in other sports. It's, it's on everybody. There's a beauty of team sports. But at the end of the day, the other thing is you can go to the ER room in these sports. I mean, you know, you can go. You're probably in most sports in most sports you're probably not going to the ER room for a bad day at the office. You're just going to, your ego is going to get bruised, but you're not going to get your arm snapped or get, or, you know, you can get dumped on your neck and your neck's never the same. So the, the, because of that, consequently, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual, the whatever, on top of like Robert is like, Robert's talking about the whole package too. It's like the intellectual chess game. And, you know, we, Robert, we had a couple of weeks ago, we had, Tom DeJarnett, who was a commanding officer of the Navy SEALs, we had him on, and he was saying, just anecdotally, by happenstance, he was saying, hey, a, a, a disproportionate number of Navy SEALs seem to be chess players. Like, these are very tactical, strategic, um, you know, warriors, and a lot of them are... Now, Robert, I would say Robert is much more of the chess player um, than I am. Like, Robert is one of those guys who, I've said this before, even when there wasn't YouTube, right? Even before YouTube, Robert was sitting there dreaming up moves or going to a tournament when, when you couldn't, you know, you couldn't right now, you can go watch the world championships on YouTube and you can rewind it 
a thousand times in super slow motion and seeing everything the guy did when Robert was competing and all, it's like, you just got like, even if you were watching or scouting a competitor, it was like your brain had to remember and you had to use deductive reasoning and other things to figure out, wait, how did he do that? And you had, you had to really troubleshoot that. So it's, it's, but for me, my thing was Robert was talking about Hulk smash. My thing in my prime, when I was a teenager, when I was in my twenties, um, you know, wrestling, more wrestling and doing some, a little bit of boxing. My thing was really, I, I wasn't as much of a technician or a, a, a chess strategist. I was really just like, I want to win more than the other person. Um, and I'm just going to break you and impose my will. Very American, a very American mindset, bigger, faster, stronger. I just want it more. I don't care what his, how good his technique is. I got a better gas tank. I want to win more. I'm tougher. And that now that's not now a guy like Robert Drysdale. That's why when I met Robert in Vegas, 2008, 2009, I think it was. And remember, Robert, I've told this story before, but it's worth telling again. He's sitting there, his wife then, Michelle Nicolini, who's phenomenal, world, multiple time world champion. She's there. I'm training with her. He's on the sidelines. I'm doing, I'm on some guy's back and I'm, I'm looking, I guess I'm a brown belt, but I'm looking pathetic. And Robert's probably sitting there like, God, like this guy could just do this, 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 this. So he comes over, shows like an arm bar from the back, right? Like this, you know, and, and nimble. I mean, Robert's like 215, 220 pounds then. And he's on the back and he transitions to this arm bar. You know, not super sophisticated to him. But to me, I hadn't seen the details of it. And this guy's 80 pounds heavier than me. And he's, more, you know, more nimble and whatever. And then that's when I say like, Robert opened my mind to like what I say, the real jujitsu. It's like, wow, this is the chess game of jujitsu. Anyway, Robert, what your, your thoughts um, taking this further? I, I think that's what initially would really, I mean, a number of things attracted me to jujitsu. Speaking for myself, I think the people are looking for different things, but um, I think that one, I, I like the idea of being dominant Um it's having that association with that tough guy kind of, you know, uh, perception that people might have had of you. Like in my teens, that appealed to me a lot more than appeals today. Today, I look at it and I think it's quite pathetic. But when I when you're 16, these things mean the world to you. And there was this thing in Brazil. They were like uh, they call them the pit boys, right? They were basically hooligans. They would go to nightclubs and get into fights, and everyone was terrified of them. And, um, and they were, you know, the jujitsu guys were known for being the the, 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 the pit boys, right? There was not the jujitsu crowd. So when I was like 16, 17, and I had just started training, like me and my friends would put on jujitsu shirt on and we would go to a nightclub <laughs> and, uh, we would walk around and the bouncers would be chasing. They'd be following us around because they were so scared we were going to get into a fight. They would literally have like five, six bouncers, like walking right behind us, just ready to like jump on us in case we got into a fight. So we're basically walking around with like what looks like private security. So everywhere we go, like people are making way for it. And it's it's super idiotic now that you look back. It's so, you know, I mean, what's the point of any of that? But when you're 16, these things are really important. Like I got a kick out of being like that badass. And like, oh, my God, look at me. Everyone's scared of me, right? And I think that was an initial motivation. Um, uh, then I, I found something else then. Like I found that I enjoyed winning. I enjoyed competition. I, I spoke a little bit about this on my TEDx. Like I found like a mean to express ambition and perhaps a bit of a frustration as a teenager, not being really good at anything. I pretty much sucked at everything I ever did. 
And then I found jujitsu and I'm like, all right, I'm going to be good at this. And, but you know, you dig deeper and there's another layer of onion and you go, Oh, wait a second. This is like really, really smart. Like this is not just two cavemen going at it. This is chess with the body. In fact, like going back to the chess analogy, I've made this analogy before. I think chess is simple in comparison. You know, the chess players don't want to hear this probably. I had a friend of mine in college. He was a chess master, right? He was like like world ranked. He was one of the best in the country. And we would always get into this argument about which one was more sophisticated. And I think I won all the debates because <laughs> – because you would go, but well, yes, you got to think 40 moves ahead and, you know, so many different plays. I'm like, I don't care how many moves you got. The human body's got way more than a two-dimensional board with 16 pieces on it. Like when given half those pieces only do the same thing. Like you're talking about the human body here, movement, and then you add the physical aspect, the physiology. You ask the strength, you add the strength and conditioning, you add the emotional stress. It's not the same in, you know, in other competitions. Like you can have something that's very intellectually challenging, let's say physics. But, you know, when you're writing a paper, it's not going to be physically hard. When you're going to present the paper, it's not going to be nowhere near as emotionally challenging as stepping into a cave will be. So when you look at things that are intellectually challenging, I think that fighting is on par with the most intellectually challenging endeavors on the planet, except that it has layers of extreme sports like, you know, or sports that are very difficult, like, let's say, gymnastics, for example, or rock climbing, which are very advanced, but I don't think they, I mean, rock climbing is probably really technical, I imagine. But like other sports, I think in terms of technique, they can't touch fighting because there's so many different ways you can approach it. It's really infinite times infinite. And I know I'm biased. This is just me speaking here. Like people, I'm sure, like anyone. Yeah, it's, any it's, it's, it's interesting to me that the note, the notion of a chess player, like you know, you, I, I'm sure, even though you don't normally see a world champion chess player who's fist pumping or talks trash like Conor McGregor or is super animated, right? It's more reserved, even in victory. But I, I just can't imagine that the feeling of dominating someone, like for me. If I was to dominate both of you at chess or a hundred people at chess, that brand of domination doesn't feel like it doesn't feel nearly as fulfilling as like, I mean, and this is the thing, and this is the thing where a lot of people out there who've never wrestled, who've never done jujitsu, who've never put on a pair of boxing gloves, who've never done any Muay Thai sparring or had never done any judo, they're not going to get it. When we talk about like the thrill of dominating or the thrill of domination, a lot of people are intimidated by that. Like they're like, that's almost like that dark side within us as like, as a, a, you know, that primal side, people are just scared of that. It's like, well, wait, if we're, if we're encouraging the thrill of domination, if we acknowledge it, then society's just going to go off a cliff and it's going to be cruel. And we're going to have those, like those groups you were talking about in Brazil with the jujitsu guys that are terrifying everybody going into clubs and going on the streets. And so it's, it's almost taboo to talk about, wow, like the thrill, you know, what, you know, the way that, you know, the code for, I, I love the thrill of domination. I just love dominating the, the, like how awesome it feels. The code for that is, Hey, I do this cause I'm competitive. I'm just competitive. So you're allowed to say I'm competitive. You're allowed to say that, but you're not yeah. allowed to sit in front of a mic and say, yeah. bro, the, yeah. one of the, one of the best feelings in the world is to feel your opponent break, to feel the struggle and to feel them slow down and to feel them quit. You can't say that. It's like, 
what's wrong with you? Are you, a, are you sadistic? Are you a sociopath? Like you're, you're, you're kind of a menace to society. Because we were, we were, I mean, we shit on honesty. We don't like honesty. That's the truth of the matter. Anyone who speaks bluntly is going to be punished for that. Like you can't, you got to say, you got to word things in a way that are uh, acceptable, but you're right. Like it's just code. You're just euphemism. We just wrap it up in a beautiful package and you're saying the same thing. But if you give the package unwrapped, people are like, oh, how dare you say that? And now you're punished for saying it in a way that did not sound good to their ear. I lean towards, you know, speaking bluntly and, and honestly, I think it's easier to communicate that way. Like, I don't like, I don't like to fluff things up too much. I think it just slows things down. And it just doesn't really do anything. And I don't know. Uh, but I see what you're saying. Like, and, 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 and the truth of the matter, every person on the mat there is trying to beat, we're all trying to beat one another. We're all trying to be the alpha doll. But when you word it like that, it sounds incredibly arrogant. But isn't that what we're all trying to do? Like, whether it's business or in school, whether it's, you know, whatever you're the, the, the car people are driving, the cars people drive. And, and isn't behind. that what we're doing? I mean, it, isn't that, yeah. It, so if it's something we're all doing, it's it's something so human. Like, why are we in denial about it? Why is it that the truth about who we are so painful to digest? Like, why do we have to wrap it up with, like, layer after layer after layer of ideology? To be like, okay, let's prevent the truth from coming out. Like, what is wrong with being who you are competitive. Like it's not, it's something that's frowned upon almost, but I don't, Robert, I, don't let, I don't, let me ask you this. Cause you, you alluded to something that we should talk about because you had a front row seat to it. So the modern person now training jujitsu, people who came along later, someone like you as a pioneer, I was in jujitsu earlier. We, we were in jujitsu before it was popular, before it was cool, before it was in vogue, before people were all over podcasts talking about get, sign your kids up. We were in it when there was no prospect of money, right? We were in it when it was, it was the love of jiu-jitsu at its purest. And you were there at Ground Zero in Brazil because you spent a lot of your years in Brazil. You have, you have dual citizenship in Brazil and the United States. And a lot of people don't know that once upon a time, jiu-jitsu had a bad name. Brazilian jiu-jitsu had a bad name in Brazil. That, that it was like, it was very... Elaborate on that because a lot of people and you and then compare that, juxtapose that with today, where jujitsu is 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 painted as this panacea that can cure the world and every kid should be in it, every cop should train in it, and it's and it's all these warm, cozy jujitsu is awesome, jujitsu is the best, jujitsu is the answer. But many decades ago, like you're talking about Brazil, it was like, wait, 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 wait. Like this is a, this is a dichotomy. This is, a, these are, it once upon a time, it had a very different image. Tell us about that. And then tell us about where we are, I guess, today with where you see jujitsu as a, you know, as a, as a people builder at, you know, bringing people, building people up, teaching them life skills on and off the mat. So, you know, there's no way you can separate. You, I can ask this question without looking at the history of the sport, right? How it splits from judo, right? Judo comes across as judo markets itself as a sport for children, as a means of education. They want to be in school curriculums. They are in the Olympics. They have an image to uphold. They have government support. So therefore, PR becomes an issue. You can't have hooligans representing judo. So they're supposed to be the good guys, right? So they have all this massive influx of cash from governments and from the private sector that are funding the sport and the sport to remain that all that money coming into it. You need what? 
they need to have maintain a good image, right? And a bad image is not going to go well with that, you know, with an Olympic sport, a sport that is supposed to be a means of education. And then on the other end, you get the Brazilian version of judo that we now call Brazilian jiu-jitsu, primarily led by the Gracie family. How do they shine in that environment? How do you stand out when you're up against millions of dollars from government and private sector, when you're up against an Olympic sport? How do you shine? Well, we know how to fight, so how do we do it? We start challenging people. We challenge this martial art. We challenge that martial art. We dojo storm. We'll pick a fight on the beach. We'll pick a fight on the streets. We'll fight on the streets all the time. In fact, we're going to train our students to fight. So when they fight on the streets, make sure our guys win, and we become the bad boys because it's better to be a bad boy than to be a no one. If you had to choose between being bad boy or being a no one, being a zero, you would rather be the bad boy. And that's sort of their mindset. So they create this Spartan culture. That's how I refer to it, the, the culture. And it builds off the Brazilian machismo culture, which is already very prevalent. Uh, the Gracie family is unique in that. They, 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 they kept a very, I have no other way to describe it, but it's just like a military-like discipline, Spartan culture within the family of combat. Like we're going to fight and we're going to win and we're going to prove that our version of judo, which they put the call jiu-jitsu, is better than what everyone else is doing. They create this culture of holding it, basically. The thing is, at some point, they can't control it. When Hoist wins in 93, the, the pit boys, they were a wave that had started in the 1930s, 40s. This goes way back. And they couldn't stop that wave. So now, now that they're mainstream, now they're on American television, they're opening gyms across the U.S. in the late 90s, early 2000s. They have to change that image. We can no longer be associated with organism. And it took a while for that to stop, but that wave finally weighing down. And now we're trying to sell jiu-jitsu with completely new image. We are trying to be what judo was because now we have tons of cash flowing into the sport. We have families. We have jiu-jitsu is viewed as a curriculum, as part of an educational curriculum. So we're trying to rebrand the sport, and that's what's been happening the last 20 years with a lot of success because when I mentioned this uh, this past of hooliganism to most practitioners, they're shocked. Like they have no idea. And like I'm not that old, and I remember well what it was like. So it's definitely there's definitely been a change. Economics change everything. Like I mean, you come down to things like not to be too cynical, but these things come down to money. You 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 know you start dumping money into the sport, which is what happened in the last twenty years, and you're gonna get you're you're gonna get people more concerned with PR and public perception. And on the other hand, you lose the Spartan culture. That's the that's the other side of this. So you have that Spartan culture of strength and 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 uh, you know in combat, and it's hard to get a belt. And you fight on the streets and you you dojo storm and you have that. And then the second you start becoming a more commercial martial art, you lose some of that. So some of the intensity of combat is lost. And on the other hand, you're making a lot more money from the sport. The sport has never made so much money. So these things balance each other out. Like it's I don't think it's better or worse. I think it's just a natural progression and evolution of the sport. And you know, that's that's how things go. They come in waves, man. They they, they they rise and they fall and then something new comes about and I think it's gonna be the same with jujitsu. I'm I'm told that the same thing, that same arc happened in the traditional martial arts like the Chinese martial arts and kung fu and and, and karate, etc. that originally going going back decades, that you know, some of the kung fu and the karate and Taekwondo, they they had they were producing a lot of a lot of badasses, but 
it wasn't commercially viable. It was like you were, you were, you were intent. It was too intimidating of an environment for people off the street and people were scared of that. So they started to dilute the standard. They put two and two together, especially when they came to the United States and realized, look, if we can dumb this down, if we can just make you punch the air, right? If you can just do katas and just do form training and nobody gets hurt and there's not even necessarily any contact sparring a lot of, at a lot of gyms, then that then the, the the Americans love that that sells and you can, and then pretty soon there's karate gyms popping up everywhere because it's it's safe and it's so it's commercially viable but a lot of as you say we would call the word Spartan a lot of that sort of that warrior ethos or that Spartanism that uh, gets lost or even the actual fighting fighting skills now we are producing Robert jujitsu and the combat sports are producing more badasses the level of jujitsu is better than it's ever been. But that's because that's because of the sheer numbers and popularity of the sport. If you look at probably the average black belt, like if you look at the average black belt now versus the average black belt back when you got your black belt or even when I got mine in 2010, when there's probably less than 3,000 jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts on the planet, like the quality to get a black belt back then, it's like, I mean... It was it was probably a higher quality than the than whatever the average is. I, again, I'm, I can't prove this, but there does seem to be some dilution in terms of you go into a lot, a lot, a lot of academies. Um, it, there, there, there is the perception, I guess, that, hey, a lot of this is is is, is being done uh, for commercial gain and that in general, the quality is diminishing. Like, like, I don't think that the average black belt, like when I, so let's go back to TEDx talk. When I gave my first TEDx talk in 2016 with Misha Tate and Anna Lynn, Anna Lynn Molina, when I gave that, of course, it goes up on YouTube and then, you know, some people like it and then you have people that troll you and they criticize. And one of the criticisms was when I talked about the, the physical injuries, like what I had to endure to get my black belt and why, I cried so, you saw me, I was crying, why I was speechless, why it meant so much to me. One of the things was the injuries, like the dance with all of those injuries, the dance with all the physical pain, like I gave my heart and soul, you were there to see me train, like I gave my heart and soul for nine and a half years for that, and 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 I and my body was banged up, and so it meant something to me, And and then there were people that were like, well, what gym did this guy train at that he had all these injuries? And where was he? He should have changed gyms. Like, he, you know, he's stupid. They don't know what they're doing. And I'm thinking, well, again, because now the standard's been diluted so much, it's like, yeah, these guys are coming along now where there's a, a McDojo on every corner. And so most people, like the idea of me having all those injuries is a foreign thing to a lot of people, right? Because they don't, they're not getting after it like that. And it was a different time in a different era when you got your black belt, when I got my black belt. Yeah. At, at the same time, you know, like technically they're way better now. Like there's like the evolution of the sport is I'm, I'm not one of those that go, I oh, old school was better. I'm nostalgic about the era in terms of culture. I think the culture was definitely better. I think the culture has gone downhill since, you know, really, you know, it's just been a constant, like it, it, it peaked in the late nineties in my opinion and the culture wise and it just went downhill from there. But technically it's been, you know, skyrocketed. Like I, you know, I, I have no shame in saying this. I can barely keep up with 
with Paulo Miao and Mike Mutsumetsu when they're going and they're burying Bolo. And like, I'm like, wait a second, I have to put it on slow motion if I want to see what they're doing. No shame in saying this. 23 years of jiu-jitsu and I can barely keep up with the evolution. And I'm not one of those either that says, oh, new is better than old. I don't believe that either. I think more weapons in your arsenal, the better. But I think that 99% of what Mike Mutsumetsu does is jiu-jitsu 101. And the only reason why people don't see it is because they're focused on the stuff that they don't know and they make that the whole story. But that if they focus on every, everything he's doing, 99% of his jiu-jitsu is very, very basic. So the whole idea between old being worse than new is just stupid to me. There's no distinction. It's the same thing. It's just an evolution in terms new, of... New is built on old. New, new, new owes whatever new is was built on the back of old, the trial and error, the guinea pigism of what we did. Whatever, whatever new is... New owes a lot of us a debt of gratitude that we were out there troubleshooting, figuring it out, you know, making it popular, you know. So as a new, a new apps, new owes a lot of people, the pioneers, like a big debt of like, hey, thank you for 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 pushing the envelope and showing us what's possible. And I think a lot of what's new is the technology is there, like I said, to rewind it and watch it a thousand times. And the numbers are there. Anytime you start having millions of people training and you have the accessibility, there's a gym on within, you know, within a 10 mile radius in, in every major city. There's there's you know, there's a bunch of gyms. I mean, the, the level should be just by the sheer number and, and, and the and the, the you know, whatever, the, the sheer availability of videos. And there, Robert, there is a tournament you could do now if our young Robert Drysdale, you used to have to drive a couple of hours to practice you were in brazil there were times when you your your commute was like whatever four hours up and back whatever to get to just to get to training okay the, the nowadays i mean you have the, the accessibility of it. it is it's just there it's like nobody you don't have to go very far to get it right it, there, you don't have to bend over backwards to get it it's been handed whatever is beautiful about it it's handed to this generation on a silver platter, buddy. If you want to be good at it, there's a you could do three tournaments a week now. If you were 17 years old and your mom wanted to drive you, you could do probably three tournaments a week, brother. You could have did a tournament a week during COVID. During 2020 COVID, you could have still in, in the United States, you'd have found places. You could have did a tournament a week. I mean, you should get good. Like me, I, when, I, when I was starting, it was like, you were lucky in 2003. I used to have to drive 700 miles from Utah to California and back to do a tournament. And, and you know, there was like, you know, licking your chops if there was like five or six tournaments. It was like in some guy's garage would be a tournament, right? They'd get a few people together. Like, it should be a higher level now. There's a tournament every week in every major, almost every major center in America. Like, it, it, it should be way higher. Yeah, I you know I always think it's 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 cute to me. I used to get angry at it. Now it's just funny to me when I see like some purple belt that is super proud of everything he knows off YouTube. You know, like to me, it used to be like, man, you're an idiot. I get angry now. It's just like you don't realize how stupid you are. <laughs> it's just kind of funny because it's they're overly proud of something they didn't do. Like they're standing on the shoulders of giants and they don't even know it. It's it's just like the ignorance of it to me is is just funny. But it's you're right. Like it, it was handed. It's much 
that even though technically it's far superior, you compete a lot more and it's far more competitive in a lot of different dimensions. It was, it is easier in the sense where these tools are available. Like we had, you, you, before you had to make an effort to learn something new. It was a lot harder to learn something new because you didn't have any references. You had to go watch a tournament. You didn't even have camera. So, I mean, you could have like a, one of those VHS cameras. It was a pain in the ass and no one had it and no one ever took them to tournaments. So you would have to remember what someone did and trying to mimic that at the gym the next day. Like what were they, what are they doing? And you try to go over it based off of collective memory. So you get a group of four or five of us and trying to remember who so-and-so was doing. And then we have to come up with a strategy. Now you pull it up on your phone and it's done. Uh, I, I don't I don't think it's better as before. I, I think today it's, it's a lot easier. Certainly it's improved. But I do think it's quite ridiculous when someone wants to take credit over something they did. Whenever I see that, I always realize because I'm a big I'm a big proponent of merit, you know. Uh, I think that merit is 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 necessary. It's important, and when people are trying to take credit over something they didn't do, to me, I just it, it, it's I, it just shows how ignorant you know the young generation really is in terms of its own recent past. That very recent. Robert, if you're if you're a world class competitor today, another thing financially. I mean, I remember when you opened your gym, and you know you had a you attracted. You know, world-class jiu-jitsu players, UFC fighters were training there. There was like a core of like the first couple of years you had it open. There's like a core of like 30 of us, right? Badasses on that mat. Like there was no, there were like hardly any regular people. It was just like UFC fighter, UFC fighter, top five contender, world champion, Pan American champion. You know, it was like it was just studs. And I remember you didn't know if the gym was going to make it, you're like, I don't know. You know, you're, you're, you're running out of money. You didn't know if you were going to make it. And now fast forward to today. So you're worried about how do I pay the rent? How do I, you know, world-class guy there, ADCC champion. How do I pay the rent? How do I keep, how do I pay my gym rent? How do I pay my rent? How do I pay my car payment? The people today, if you're a world-class competitor, you don't have to sweat the rent the same way too. So you you can, you can be, you could be all in on your art. You could train two, three times a day, teach a class, whatever. It's a different world. And like I said, it's a silver. And God bless a lot of the, the, the incredible competitors out there. God bless them. But it is if you're a hard worker and you're an alpha and you're competitive, it's a silver platter compared to what it was 15, 20 years ago. It is. I mean, it's it's, it's 10x easier. It's, it's 10, The training is just as hard. But everything else around it, paying your rent, making money, monetizing it, you know, all of the things that come with social media and having 300,000, 500,000, a million followers, it's a whole different world. And my only thing, my point here is not to undermine the, the young, great athletes out there, many of some of whom I know and who I love and I respect. That's not my point. My point is they better realize, they better knock themselves upside the head and show mad respect for the for the old school because the old it was all built on the back of the old school. That's my point. Yeah, and and I, and I agree with you. I just I just want to you know add one thing. In some ways, it, it was harder before, Frank, because you're right. There was less money. There was less exposure. There were less tournaments. There was no YouTube. There were no like very few instructionals. On the other hand, there were less fights too. It was less competitive. Like it's become more competitive in the sense where. 
you know, a stacked division when I was a purple belt, a stacked division, like Brazilian championship would have been like five fights, right? Today, like it's double that amount. It's six. So I've seen seven. I've seen blue belt middleweight. Do you think Leo Vieira could have competed in this generation with all of the same advantages with, you know, all YouTube at his fingertips? I think Leo Vieira would have had another two or three Leo Vieiras in there just as good as him. And it would have been because there's more people, more people is going to bring more phenoms, right? It's just natural that you're going to have more phenoms. So there was less competition in the sense where we had less people practicing and less high level guys that were fully invested in the sport like we were. Now there's a lot more people that are doing this full time. So it's more competitive in that sense, even though the tools at disposal are a lot better. But Robert, if you were, if you were, like, so now, if you go into some academies, you've got 15, 20 black belts on the mat in some really good academies, sometimes more black belts, right? I mean, there's sometimes there's 20, 30, whatever, black, 40 black belts on a mat. So the cumulative knowledge there is so much better. Again, it's an apple to an orange because how do you, these kids, these phenoms benefit from 30 black belts on the mat. We didn't have 30. We didn't have that. We would have learned quicker too, and I, I still think that the most driven, the most driven of the era twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, would be right there with the most driven of today, and they would just have had more resources available to them. The the people that are the type A that were living it, that were driving like you were two hours, would have they might not have been world champions, but they would have still been in the conversation because they wanted it. They wanted it like no other did. And they would have had a lot more resources available to them to to reach those dreams. You're right. Can we say that? I mean, even Hoppa Mendes, because Hoppa Mendes is sort of like a tweener. He wasn't in. Those guys are a little bit younger than you. But you go watch Hoppa Mendes. You know, he's a little bit later, right? So he's kind of in between the old school and the new school. But tell me Hoppa Mendes would, you know, a young Hoppa Mendes, if he wanted to be like, would he not be a world champion because it's so competitive now? Like, I, I, don't, well, I don't believe I, that. I, I just think, think the guy's competing for world championships in any era. When, when the, the thing is, the pool of, I'll give an example. I was, we, we interviewed Jen Jacks Machado the other day. He's going to be the narrator for the documentary, right? And he, and I asked him, I suspected this, but I wanted confirmation. I was like, what was the biggest tournament in Rio de Janeiro, which was the mecca of jiu jitsu in Brazil, right? The biggest tournament was called Copa Company. Right. And how many competitors asked? And he said about 200. That was the biggest competition in Brazil in the early 90s had 200 competitors. Now, any IBJJF tournament today is going to have close to a thousand. Just to give an idea. And sometimes you do three a weekend. So my point is, it's not it is it's been handed on a silver platter. You're absolutely right. But in the 90s, there are a lot of people that would go to football, soccer, judo and wrestling and gymnastics and volleyball or whatever. Then now, due to the growth of jiu-jitsu, a lot of these very athletic-driven individuals are coming to jiu-jitsu. So now you have more Hafa Mendes than you did in the 90s. That's all I'm saying. Uh, and in, so in some ways, like it's not that Hafa wouldn't have won, but he just would have had other guys to split those titles with. So being you, – you're going to have – you just it's more competitive in the sense where you have a lot more people training. Like the number of people training now is – I mean, what? How fast is it growing? I don't even know. I wish IBJJF had numbers on this. I don't think it's easy to measure. 
I think we're still they do behind. have numbers. They they just don't share the numbers. They have the numbers. They don't share no, the numbers. They, they have the numbers of like people registered with them, but I don't think they have numbers of overall practitioners. I think about maybe ten percent of my students are registered under IBJJF, maybe less. I think the vast majority of jiu-jitsu practitioners are not on IBJJF's radar. The vast majority, like I said, ninety percent at least, if not ninety-five percent, like they will never compete in IBJJF tournament, and that's the vast majority of practitioners. So it's difficult to measure because in judo, at least they 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 register. I think all their students. So I think they have better control of how many people they have practicing. Jiu-jitsu is not there yet, but I think we're still behind you. How many black belts do you think there are? How many how many BJJ black belts do you think there are in the world? We don't need, we don't have nobody has nobody I know has that number. How many do you think? Your I, I have one hundred and fifty. Me. I have 100, over 150, just me, Robert Drysdale. Uh-huh. Over 150, just to give an idea. So what, if you had to wager a guess, a guesstimate, how many in the world? Hundreds of thousands. You think so? No, I'm, I'm thinking 40,000-ish. No, I don't think so. I have, I have 150 alone, just me, 150. There are people in Brazil who've been teaching for 40 years, man. Like, you know, I Paulo Lezange has over 300. He's a friend of mine. He's got them right. He's got an Excel spreadsheet with every single one of their names. 300 plus people. Legit. Wow. I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know. I don't know. I could be way off the mark here, man. Like, just to give yeah, an idea, this, this, I registered my black belt under IBJJF in 2004 when I got it. I think my number is like 2,000-something. So in 2004 registered they had 2000 some black belts that's in 2004 so now i mean at least 100,000 i was surprised if they're less less than that yeah i, mean, so I, I want to i mean th- this is something that the sports should have by the way this should be a number that a lot of us i mean this is just so we have to get organized in some way but i do want to say this about you know um I, I want to make it absolutely clear that there is no questioning. I'm not an idiot. There is zero question that the level of jujitsu is at the all time high. This is the best it's ever been. This is the best level. And that it's that, that, that the major tournaments are super deep and the talent level is sick. And in 10 years, it's going to be even more sick. There's no question. I mean, that that's not my, that's not what I'm arguing. I mean, that's just very clear that the level in the, in the UFC octagon is the best it's ever been. You, you know, jiu-jitsu wrestling. I mean, rest, the level of rest, collegiate wrestling. This is the best wrestling we've ever seen. They're doing, you know, you've got, you know, you've got some weight classes in collegiate wrestling. You've got like 10 guys that could win the national title. I mean, and like there's weight classes where it's like any one of 10 could win this thing, right? And some of them, it's like on any given day, eight could, could yeah, whatever. So, so there's no question there. My, I guess my perspective is the perception. What happens is when when the young generation and the new generation comes, in my opinion, and, and what I'm saying is they tend to crap on the older generation. Like, well, that was, e- that was easier and that's the old jiu-jitsu. And they tend to just sort of belittle it as in like, eh. But my thing is like, it's a necessary. It's part of the building. A lot of the troubleshooting, a lot... We were guinea pigs. We had to figure it out. It was hard, and we did the best with what we have. It wasn't like we didn't have. I mean, I wasn't bear bullying because it wasn't. It, it you know it, it really wasn't. It wasn't widely available. Maybe if I Mikey Musumeci was my training partner back in two thousand three, I'd have been this phenomenal bear and bowler. Maybe if heel hooks were allowed in, you know, you know, uh, in two thousand five, I'd have been this great heel hooker. 
But here, here's the other thing. Like, this is a lot of, like, the young generation missed this out on. They create this hierarchy, once again, old and new, right? I reject that hierarchy entirely. I don't believe in any of it. I don't think a Burning Bolo is better than a half-guard sweep or a close-guard sweep. I think it's new. I think it's interesting. I think it's important. It's an, it's a welcome. It's, a, it's an addition we should all welcome. But to say that it is better than a close-guard, I, I just reject it entirely. It's not what I see. It's not what I see. I watch competition, and I see – probably more sweeps from close guard than I do during bowls. And it's just that people hyper-focus on what's new and they ignore whatever doesn't suit their case. It's confirmation bias. But if you if you looked at the overall pattern, the overwhelming majority of what's being practiced at the highest level is old school jiu-jitsu. What we refer to as old school jiu-jitsu, things that already existed in the 80s, 90s. That's the overwhelming majority of it. It's just that it's, we focus on the highlight. The highlight is what stands out. I watch high-level competition all the time, and I see a jiu-jitsu 101 all over the place. Uh, it's just, you know, it's it's just missed. People, they just focus on what they want to do. Yeah, this is what's interesting about jiu-jitsu, too. I remember, and this still happens, if the UFC, if the UFC has, like, some crazy arm bar or some, you know, Ryan Hall doing, you know, an Imanari roll to a heel hook, and, and once you see that, like, it happens in a UFC fight, the next, the following Monday, people in everywhere around the world in gyms are training that sequence, right? If if somebody hits this sick armbar in an IBJJF tournament, then it becomes the the move du jour for the next whatever, and so then it's a, a season for armbars. But to your point, these things come and go; they ebb and flow. There'll be a season where there'll be some great guard player, and then for a while, people will say close guard's the greatest thing in the world because. One, one person does it, captures people's imagination, then it, then it becomes a wave, and then, you know, gyms are practicing it, and then something else comes along, and then it just kind of gets recycled. All these things get recycled to where it's like, you know, 10 years from now, arm bar, you know, I thought, like, when I, I remember, I went to a tournament in California when I was a white belt, and they threw all the white belts, and so there was, there were so few tournaments in 2003 that they threw all the white belts with the blue belts, and nobody protested. Like, today... Today, some coach would be like, oh, hell no, you're not throwing my white belt in with it. And they threw us up like they missed like they mixed like three way classes. Right. They put 16 guys. They said white belts and blue belts. You're together. You're 140. You're 150. You're 170. You guys are all together. Right. Today, the coaches would freak out. Right. But anyway, we, we go there and I got arm barred by a guy named Fan who was a blue belt. And, and uh, I got armboard and I got my arm popped because I didn't want to tap. So I took him down, I picked him up, and then I, I thought, wow, look at me. I picked him up, you know, double leg, whatever. And then we landed. There was a sequence. He's hanging from my arm. Like an idiot, I didn't tap. So the referee could hear my arm popping. Pop, 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 pop. I didn't hear it because I was just seeing red, and I was thinking there's a way for me to get out of the armbar. So the referee stops it. I ice my arm. I go. Ice my arm. I had two more matches, double elimination tournament. Anyway, when I came back on the ride, I had a set like a six six hundred mile ride back or whatever to uh, to 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 Salt Lake City, Utah, and I was going over in my head. Okay, my arms pop. It's going to be you know probably six to eight weeks before this thing heals. I can't be getting arm barred like that, right? Like, and so I that the best thing that ever happened to my arm bar defense, Rob, was getting my arm popped because that made me like, hey. I got to learn to defend arm bars. I got to be smart about that. I can't just be popping up to my feet and extending my own arm, whatever, whatever. But the point there was that 
there weren't in in that four, five, six years. It wasn't you didn't see. I didn't see at least in the tournaments and where I was. I didn't see a lot of great arm bars. So I was thinking, man. I didn't have the faith in arm bars as much because where I was in training and what I saw in the magazine and what I could see, I didn't see people like arm barring people left and right. So I didn't believe, even though I got my arm popped, I didn't believe like arm bars are this phenomenal weapon. But you go now and you, you see like some people are just so phenomenal at it. And it's like if there had been YouTube back then and I had seen a bunch of people doing phenomenal arm bars, I probably would have spent a lot, lot more time working arm bars, right? Like, and, and, and it's just, so now it's, it's anyway, the, the, the point I want to make there is that um, incredible respect for the younger generation. They're doing phenomenal things. The level is definitely better. It's a great time to train jujitsu. It is great for kids. I believe in it. You've got a great kids program there, Rob. I believe in it. The only point I'm making is like you just said, that don't act like we're reinventing the wheel in all these ways. We're not. We're combining things a lot of times that already existed. They just weren't as popular. They just weren't as well-known. There wasn't a camera in the room, right? There wasn't a camera in the room to see some of the things that were being done. There wasn't some loud athlete who's great at marketing, uh, you know, shining a light on every move. But the, a lot of this stuff, these are moves that were being done years ago, um, and now there's just a camera and a light in the room and someone who has a magnetic personality or who has a lot of success is getting people to pay attention. That's the point. And, and respect what we went through at a time when it was pure, when there wasn't money, when we were still trying to figure it out. And when I think in general, me, I, I personally still think, I think, Robert, that um, I think that in, in some ways it would have been easier for me if I, if my objective was to get a black belt, it wouldn't have been easier for me competing. It's harder to compete now because the talent level is deeper. But I think in a lot of ways, if I just wanted to get a black belt, it would be easier for me to get it today training. If I wanted to take less damage and whatever, it would be easier because I could find a lot more gyms where I didn't have to go through the shark tank. I didn't have to go through the gauntlet. There would be a lot more gyms available to me if I wanted to take an easier road to the black belt. There's a lot more of that avenue available to me now than there was back then. That to me, yeah. is, it seems very clear. Yeah, there's, there's, that's definitely true. It's, um, it's gotten, it's gotten softer. That's, that, that I miss. I think the, what I, when I what said, I think the culture it's gone downhill is that it's been impacted by the overall cultural shift in the world. And it's gotten very soft, very, very soft. Like I, I mean, I was watching that. You guys watched that Cobra Kai series on Netflix. I saw only like a couple episodes, but it was very nostalgic, right? Because I used to like Karate Kid when I was a kid. And uh, there's like the sensei. He's like the guy that I can't remember his name, but he fought Daniel's son, and now he's they're trying to frame him as the as the good guy, right? And uh, the way he talks to his students is hilarious. <laughs> Because it's like, that's how my coaches used to talk to me. <laughs> Just talking shit, calling me names, calling me stupid all the time. <laughs> if you did something wrong, if you got taken down, it wasn't a correction. It was, you got called names, you idiot. <laughs> like, get over here, you moron. <laughs> that's how they talk to you. And, and I, I don't mind. I mean, I was never offended. I don't mind. But today, it's like, oh. Are, are you are you you know are you gonna be okay? Is this everyone's so sensitive? I think the culture has taken a very, it's gotten worse in that regard. But just going back to a point you made a while ago, 
how everyone goes by fashion, right? Like they see something, it's the greatest idea ever. And then, you know, because it's being done. And if it's not done clearly, it's stupid. So the truth is what the majority wants. So if many people are saying that, you know, flannel shirts are cool, then they are. If majority say they're not, then of course they're not cool, right? So knowledge, truth are not binded by accuracy, ra- uh, reason, or logic. They're binded by the opinion of the majority, which is easily popularity, very easily manipulated, right? Which is a terrifying thought to me. I think that's one of the most terrifying features in, in human psychology is how easily mass psychology is manipulated to the left or to the right, forward, back. You know, it's, it's, it's mass psychologists. It's a, I think one of the most terrifying things about ourselves is is the fact how easily we're swayed by by what other people are doing, and I see this in jujitsu all the time. I see it in MMA. Someone does something like I always use this as an example. So Anthony Pettis throws that spinning kick at WAC and knocks out Ben Henderson. Right? He knocks him out. He's a genius. He does the same thing. Slips, lands on his head, knocks himself out. He's an absolute moron. So it's the, the, the criteria is not the attempt of the technique itself is whether you were successful with it or not. So now everyone's trying and that move was the greatest move ever. I, I always recommend this movie to my students because I think it makes the point is I'm not a big fan. I don't watch many movies, but every now and then you find something that really rings a bell with you. And it's um, a movie called Moneyball with Brad Pitt and he's a baseball coach. Have you seen it? It's a really good film. So basically, in baseball, they were just hiring people based off of their um, – it's a fashion, right? Like whatever tradition was, that's what we do because that's what people before us did, so it must be true. And then, you know, the main character, he goes along with wait a second. Let's look at the numbers here. What do the numbers say? So he starts hiring people based off statistics, which is the most intelligent way to look at it. Like you would think that's how coaches and managers will look at things based off of numbers, not based off of public opinion. But that's not what's happening. Long story short, he revolutionized the sport, changed things forever. And I don't see that in fighting. That's what's interesting to me. Like, no one thinks that way in fighting. It's all about fashion. And your students demand it. It's a public demand. Like, my students want to learn what's popular, not what necessarily is happening in tournaments. Like, there's there's an enormous gap there between what is popular and what is actually happening. And you see this all the time. Like, oh, this camp is the most successful camp in jiu-jitsu. And I'm watching. I'm like... What are you guys talking about? Like, there's nothing there. This guy is the greatest grappler on the planet. I'm like, what? I mean, because he said it on Instagram, so it must be true, right? So you get this, uh, um, in some ways, you know, and and I argue a little bit about this in the book, the internet and social media have made us less informed, not more informed. And it's unfortunate because it is a tool for information, but somehow it made us more ignorant and more confident in our ignorance. Let's let's shift gears now and let's talk about the actual TEDx, which I had expected we talk about sooner, but we got we got caught up in this and, and this is an this is an interesting topic. I mean, because um, I'm interested, like your your documentary, the history of the sport. I'm interested um, in the evolution of the sport. And one day, one day, the athletes out there, by the way, who are the new athletes, who are the new wave. Who, or the new blood or whatever, one day they're going to be the old school, right? There's going to be some new blood coming 15, 20 years from now, and they'll be they'll be crapping on the old school or, you know, crapping on the basics or whatever. And then the 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 the, the athletes right there who are the new school. So they'll 
they'll they'll be in uh, in in my shoes um, at some point. Let's talk about TEDx talk. So it's not easy for anybody out there watching. It is not easy to just uh, get yourself a TED, TED TED or TEDx talk. It's it's challenging. Usually, you have to be nominated by someone. Um, it's 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 a great opportunity. Not everybody wants to do it. Not everybody wants to be up on stage. Uh, Robert, we were we were we got a little lucky. We were able to get you a TEDx talk here in Las Vegas. That's going to be out, I guess, uh, in a couple of months. That the topic of that basically one of the themes of that was what's the point of winning? And basically, as background, I I alluded to this when we when we first when Noah and I first started the podcast that. You know, you are a guy who's, you know, you're ultra competitive, you love winning and you hate losing. And, you know, you, you, you did this for a long time at a high level. You've coached world champions. And then at some point, you still feel kind of empty. You're like, wow, is the juice worth the squeeze? Why doesn't this feel better? Why doesn't this why doesn't this thrill last longer? What's the point of this? Like, what's my identity? What's my identity beyond fighting? We got you the TEDx. We got it abbreviated, by the way. So we didn't have a lot of the other TEDx speakers. I think there were 24 TEDx speakers at that event. And I think, to my knowledge, almost all the other speakers had months, some of them more than six months, to prepare. You and I were very abbreviated on a crash course. I think we maybe had five or six weeks. So, And you, and this is not a speech that you'd given somewhere else. It's not like you were running around for years giving this speech. We had to kind of get this thing from scratch. So... Tell us, I guess, about the process. Why were you, why were you interested in doing a TEDx, and why this topic? I think the topic has always been on my mind. It's not a new theme to me. Like, what's the point of winning? Is something I've been asking myself since I was blue belt, perhaps. Once I realized that, like, there's always going to be another bigger tournament. There's always a bigger one. <laughs> it's like you start thinking about these things, right? So. <clears throat> Um, so it's, it's been a, it's, it's been a theme I've been fascinated my whole life. I, much of my, I've always leaned towards thinkers that are trying to answer that question or thinking about it. And I don't think there's a perfect answer. I have my ideas of what I think are good answers, but I don't think it's a satisfying answer to everyone, but it satisfies me to a large extent. Like I feel satisfied with some of the solutions I, I, I find to this problem, but it's uh, well, the TEDx was like more of like a challenge thing. Like I, I thought it'd be cool to do. I'd never done anything. Like, I've never given a speech before, other than in front of my uh, students or at seminars, and I talk to them about topics that I think are relevant to their growth and in, uh, in martial arts. But I never been, you know, done anything beyond that. <clears throat> I think that I don't. I don't think that the lack of. I mean, honestly, like the way my mind works, there's no such thing as a home run. Like I. I don't even like to watch, you know, some people would think like, oh, you like to watch the tournaments you won and watch yourself. Like I don't because even the ones I won, all I see are mistakes. I, there's no fishing as a home run with me. Even had it been the best performance ever, I think that I would have still been disappointed with myself because I'm going to see the mistakes. I can't blame the time or lack of preparation. I can say a few things. I think I could have done better. I was First, I was overconfident. Two, the speech changed too many times. Three, I didn't practice in front of people enough. I thought that practicing in my head was the same as speaking to someone, really lack of experience in this. Um, 
And I think that was it. The other thing too is, um, you know, there's something about public speaking that I just made, just made myself aware of. A lot of it is acting. Like there's a big component of acting in it. Like it's um, body language and how you present it. And it's not from the heart. It's not, it's something that's largely memorized, including the body language is memorized. So I think that takes time and training. Or some people are just better than others. Maybe I'm not a good actor. I don't know. But, like, there's a lot of acting. In it. And it's not that the message isn't real. It's that it's been polished so much, it's lost its rawness. And raw is more where I would sell, I feel like, maybe. Or I do better, at least, maybe that itself. But, I mean, I had a lot of fun with it, man. Like, regardless of – I never did this for the views or popularity. Like, I mean, I've been invited to do more, and like, you know, possibly, you know, other, you know, public speaking gigs. And I, something I'd be interested in, but if it doesn't, like I, I've made my peace with, I found a, 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 I found a really happy place in my head, man. Like I'm just really content with who I am and what I have and where I'm at and whatever comes, comes. If it doesn't, I'm, I don't need, I, I find challenges in, 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 in books. I find challenges in, in business. Now I find challenges as a parent. Like I find challenges everywhere. I don't need the, the stardom and have a mediocre career to be like super famous and rich. I mean, if these things come, they come, but if they don't, I'm, I, I don't, I don't, I don't admire. When I look up to people, like when you look at like someone who's really, for example, someone who's at probably the pinnacle of that business, let's say Tony Robbins. I don't admire him. Like, I don't think anything of the guy. I think he's got nothing to say. I think he's an empty shell. He's a very good actor, but he's an empty shell. Like there's no content there whatsoever. So, like, why would it be like that guy? I'm like, hell no. And then I look at other people in the fight industry that are doing really well, you know, and I look at them and I know some of them really well. And I'm like, do I want to be like that guy? I'm like, hell no, I don't want to be that guy. So, like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with how I live my life. There's some things I need to improve. But, like, if, if it happens, it happens. But I enjoy, I, I think that, you know, it definitely, at least pertain to the theme of Wayne, it's something I have lived. I'm not just, it's not lip service. I have lived that life of being frustrated with your accomplishments. Like, it never ends. Like, you still, you know, it doesn't matter how much you win. You don't, you don't get around that. But there are solutions. I think there are ways around that that make, that give meaning to what you're doing regardless of satisfaction with that win itself, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You and, you and I have had this conversation. Um, the same thing, when I watch the TEDx talks that I've given, I, I cringe. I have trouble. You know, you said to me, I think, you know, hey, Frank, I'll watch my speech, you know, once or twice, and then I'll look at what I could do better, and then, you, you know, you're, you're not going to sit there and incessantly rewind it and watch it and watch it. And I have a hard time. I'm proud that I gave the TEDx talks. I feel very fortunate I put a lot of time and effort in that. I love the process. I love being on stage. I love the people I met. But it's hard because I'm such a perfectionist. It's hard because just like you, I mean, I, same thing with grappling. When I watch videotape of myself, it's like I could see, I could put, if you show me a match where I'm out there for five, six minutes on the mat, I could literally, I mean, there's 20, 30 things I'm like, should have did that. Posture here, posture's bad there. The guy, you know, I, there was a single leg there. There was a this there. Same thing with the speech. You know, you watch it. But this is this is where, you know, you and I had this conversation afterwards, Bob, because sometimes when you come off stage for a TEDx, 
you don't know what to make of your performance, right? You haven't seen it. You're so in the moment. You're up there, and and you come off. You're like, God, I feel like I just bombed, or I feel like I sucked, right? And sometimes we can feel like that after a fight, right? Even if we win, it's like, God, I was pathetic out there today because we have this awareness of like, hey, I didn't nail my ending. Hey, I forgot to add. You know, I had this part of the script or this part of the speech, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't include it. And so we're aware our brains, and I think most people's brains are wired like this. We're wired to focus on what we didn't do or the negative or the mistake we made rather than all the things that went well. There's something about the human brain that, that likes to do that. And especially it does that with the ultra competitive people, the perfectionists. And so, um, you know, and, and that's why you have all these armchair critics, people on their couch, people in their basement, right? Keyboard warriors. It's so easy to sit there. You're watching a football game. It's an 80 yard pass. The wide receiver has it. It goes through their hands and they drop it. And you're like, everybody should, you know, and it's 30 degrees outside, right? It's 30 degrees. The athlete is diving. It touches their fingertips and then they don't catch it. And everybody is like, wow, you've got to catch that. And it's like, what percentage of people with another defensive back draped on you, 30 degrees cold, you're running, you're diving, what percentage of the human population is actually going to catch that thing? Same thing with like high-level jujitsu. Like it's easy to sit there or MMA and say, oh, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world. It's the easiest thing in the world to watch your speech when your speech comes out and for someone to be like, he should have did this, he should have did this. But when you're up there, right, when, when, when the lights come on, it's, it's, it, I mean, nobody's perfect up there, right? Like nobody's perfect. And so what we have to take away from it, like I said to you after yours, it's like, bro, you're part of a, a less than a 1% that are ever going to give a speech like that on that, on that kind of stage. And, and, I, and having sat there and watched you and let's go into the, to what you talked about, but having sat there and watched you for a guy who's basically a rookie speaker, Right. And for and if we had an abbreviated time to get that speech done there, it is a scripted speech. Both you and I are very good unscripted speakers from the heart speakers. This was a scripted speech, which anybody out there, scripted speeches can be really tough, especially if you're if you're the like, you know, you're just the machine like you and me. You're an expert on your topic and you don't want to be you don't want to be handcuffed in the scripted because scripted can kill the emotion. It can kill the, the heartfeltness of it. And so I thought all things considered, man, I mean, you were comfortable on stage, you were credible. And I think, you know, because of COVID, there wasn't a live audience at the event where we were. A lot of times there's a live audience and then, and you know, the speaker can feed off of that, but there was no live audience. There were like 50 people who were affiliated with that TEDx event. But I can say this, Rob, everybody who was sitting there was definitely you commanded them everybody was listening you had a lot of credibility on the topic uh, and i and everybody it was compelling everybody had to listen i think everybody listened for the 10 the 11 12 minutes whatever it was that you spoke you had everybody's attention and 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 you know just your pre you had the presence you had the stage presence and it's especially impressive for a tedx speaker so we could sit here and punch 20 holes in what you did and we should have did this and we should have organized the speech. We could do that all day. But let's talk about some of the things that you revealed because you were very candid. You were you made some admissions there that 
even a lot of people who know you, you know, might not know what you were going through. Some of the darknesses, some of the challenges you, you'd mentioned, even, you know, at your low point. Tell us about some of the things that you that you reveal in that TEDx and, and, and why did you why I feel okay to, to, to put that out there. Um, I, I, I don't have, never have a problem opening myself. Like I've always called myself an open book. Like I don't have anything to hide in the sense where, you know, like I, I'm proud of who I am. So whatever comes across is genuine. And I think big change for me, you know, somewhat recent, like, and, and it's a lesson that we, we all pay lip service. We all talk about it, but you're, it's, it's something that it's very difficult to absorb. And I think I've gotten a lot better at it the last few years. I, if people like me, they do. If they don't, they don't. Like, some people aren't going to like you. It's just, there's no, I think I used to be to try to be a people pleaser in the past. And it just backfired on me so much. I'm kind of content with who I am. I'm not perfect. I know, I'm aware of some of my flaws. I'm unaware of others. I, I think I can be very arrogant at times because I tend to speak openly. It comes across the wrong way. And sometimes when I sound like I'm, it sounds like I'm fishing for compliments for being overly humble, but in fact, I'm just being sincere. You know, and that's the price. I think when you're, when you're blunt, I think that you're going to come across as overly humble and fishing for compliments on one end and overly arrogant, overly confident on the other. But it's 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 how I it's who I am. Like I know I've, I've made my peace with that. Like some people aren't going to like you, and that's fine. But I always tell myself, like like Jesus got crucified. <laughs> you can't make everyone happy. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> you can't. Some people aren't going to like you. It's fine. So for me to speak openly about who I am is not something that I have an issue with. Some people think I do. We always think it's a touchy because, like you know. For example, speaking of my drug test, which to me is a meaningless event. It means nothing. I mean, it is it is what it is, but people obsess over it because, I mean, it's funny because whenever my name comes up, that's the first thing people, like, people, like I, at least on Instagram sometimes, like someone immediately have to remind me of that. In the meantime, there are other people that fail three drug tests, but they don't talk about them. <laughs> people will find the one thing about you that they don't like, and that's going to be the whole story. And that's, and that's fine. That's the... That's the the, the, the the open forum that the internet has become. Everyone has everyone is entitled to an opinion, I suppose. But I don't have an issue talking about it. People think I do, but it is what it is. I know where I made a mistake. I know that I lied on my drug tests, but I never had a physiological hormonal advantage. And that's a fact verifiable by documents. That's not up to debate. That is science, it is mathematical, and I have the documents. It's not up to debate. But I did lie, so therefore I am wrong, and I am wrong by principle, not for any other. I am wrong for lying, and that's the end of that discussion. But there was never a advantage because my hormone levels were very, very low at the time of the fight. So, uh, it's at least pertaining to free testosterone, which is what counts. A lot of people can't uh, they don't understand the difference between epi testosterone, total testosterone, and free testosterone. They're all very different things. Don't take my word for it. Ask an endocrinologist; they'll tell you the same thing. Um, but you know, so people think like Rob, like it's something you should approach because it's um, it's something that you know people wonder about. I'm like, I can talk about it. I think the whole problem began when like I never, I never, I never made a public apology. Like, oh, Rob, you have to make a public apology. I'm like, I'm not going to apologize. Apologize to my coaches. I'll apologize to my friends and family. I'll apologize to the people near me. 
I'm not going to apologize to strangers that ever done anything for me. Why should? What am I apologizing for? Did I upset you? Oh, boo-hoo, some professional athlete failed a drug test. I am outraged. You sitting on a couch eating potato chips wants my you want my apology? Well, you can go to that place, right? Go F yourself. So that was kind of my attitude. And I remain, I stand by that. I don't owe anyone an apology. That's why I never made one. Like, what is this? I have to apologize. Like, I don't owe you anything. So um that was so I think that that led people to think that it was like it was still like something that I hadn't tackled. And it's not because I'm scared of talking about it. I'll have this conversation with anyone. I'll have this conversation with you, Sad. I'll have this conversation with anyone, really. Like any it, it's it's not it, 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 it's something I'm open about because I know where I stand, I know where I erred, and I know where I I was unfairly portrayed because once again it's not up to debate. Uh, but but at the time you know, at the time it was de- at the time it was devastating for you. It was devastating to be I it was it was devastating in some ways. At the time it was because I didn't want to. I saw something. It was. I mean, obviously it was my career, but it was. I think what hurt the most was how shitty people are. Even people that are very close to you. And you realize, oh my god! Like it's very quick how people move away from you. It's very interesting, like when you're on top of the world and you're you're going to be the next UFC champion, you know, and how everyone wants to be your friend. Everyone like that's my guy over there. That's my guy, you know. I'm his friend. Look, we went to school together. Look, I'm related to him. Look, the picture we took together. And the second you're you're not on the you're not going to be Conor McGregor, then all of a sudden they move away from you. Like, oh, I never met you. No, I don't even know who you are. You know, my friend. You know, and how quick that thing that was the biggest. Um, it probably was what really turned me off from show business in general. Like, why would I put myself in the position to be judged by people who never tried? I, I value my work ethic too much. I value my history too much. I value my integrity too much to even allow myself to be put in a position to be judged by the pros. And I'm not. I hope I don't sound arrogant here, but I, I fought very hard my whole life to achieve things. I was never handed to me. Like I was, I wasn't born rich. I was not a talented athlete. I was. I had to drive for two hours to practice. I had to take three buses at some point. It never stopped me. And to see people on the couch eating potato chips, demanding an apology and outrage for judging me, it's like, I'm sorry, but I, I, I refuse to allow you to judge me. I, 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 I take. I will not give you that power. So. That was, I think, that was a big light bulb moment, mind-opening moment for me about people in the world in general. And it was very, very healthy. Like, I'm very thankful for it because it put me in a mindset that set me on a different course of how I saw myself and how I saw the world that was necessary. There was a missing piece there. And it would have been missing my whole life, and I was completely... Maybe I had other opportunities to learn these lessons, but I think I needed like a, a hard wake-up call to learn it. And I wouldn't change a thing. Like, I mean that. Like, some people think – I was just talking to someone yesterday about this. And, like, if I could change places with UFC, UFC champion, I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade places with them. I mean that. Like, I, I perfectly – I value the lessons way more. There's a concept that I, I – um, you know, I got from Nietzsche where he calls it a morfati, which means love of faith. And I think it's his way of making, you know, being at peace with the world because he's such a driven, outrageous, 
angry writer. He's such a, you know, calls it a philosopher, the philosophize with a hammer. That's what he calls it, right? He's just, he's got no issues attacking everyone and everything. But at some point when you're that driven of a thing, you have to find peace with yourself. And he finds it through the concept of what he calls amor fati, which means love and faith. You love your fate, the good and bad. The good, you enjoy. The bad, or lessons, you grow. And it's something I really took from his ideas because that's kind of how I look. I try to look at things like that. If I fail, it's not for lack of trying, but I think it's a very good way of looking at things that are out of your control. You can't control everything. Some things are not going to go according to plan. And you can dread on it or you can learn from it, accept your faith, move on, use it as something to grow on. And that was sort of like the theme of the talk. Maybe I didn't come across that way. I didn't express it well because these are things that are, you know, they're, they're some things that I enjoy thinking about. I spend a lot of time thinking about them, but maybe they're not interesting to other people. But to me, they're, this, is, this is how you defeat ambition is making your peace with the end result enjoying the good as moments of ecstasy because they don't last long if you enjoy them and then with the bad you use them as you know fuel for growth there's nothing else you can do um how did you i already know the answer to this but if noah doesn't know the viewers don't know um talk about a lot of people would have a uh, would be terrified to go and give a speech even if they practice, it's, you know, a lot of people are, are just nervous. That, you know, that's terrifying to them. Um, you, I know that you, you're very confident, and I know that you feel very comfortable on stage. You've given seminars. You've had plenty of students where there have been 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 people in the room. Um, but nevertheless, for people out there who do wrestle, who do struggle with, public speaking or standing in front of people and talking um what's your advice what works for, for you to go up there and to feel confident and to deliver with when the lights come on um i i wasn't good i remember my first jiu-jitsu class i taught like i actually had i was replacing an instructor and he was moving, so he was with me, and he had to jump in like three or four times to help me because I was stuttering so much. And that was a class with like seven people in it. <laughs> it didn't start out well. <laughs> but uh, you, you get better at it over time. And I think my recommendation to people is I think we allow other people to judge us too much, and it shouldn't matter. And I, I, don't, want, I don't mean this in a way where you should be a narcissist or a sociopath and not care about what other people think. But the most important opinion is the one you have of yourself. Always remind, I always try to remind myself of that. What I think of myself is the most important opinion. And if I'm happy with who I am, if people like me, if they don't, they don't. And I think when you have that mindset, you walk up there, if people are going to judge you and they think it sucks, like, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't hurt me. It's like, I don't give a shit. Like, you cannot like me. That's perfectly fine. Like, nothing changes in my life. I think that thinking too much about how you're going to be received on the other end is a, is a character flaw. Like you should, like you should work hard not to give, you know, not to care, like just let it be. It is, you know, go out there, speak, be yourself. Whatever happens, happens. Like let the, the chips fall where they may, like you say, you know, and that's perfect. That's it. That's how more fati. That's let the chips fall where they may, whatever happens, happens. But I think it, the people who are, if, you get nervous in front of crowds is that they're so focused on how other people perceive them 
They, they can't focus for a second on what they're actually saying. And I think that hurts the message and it certainly hurts the talk. I think in my case, I think I was a little nervous because I think new deep down I wasn't prepared. Um, I don't have a problem with crowd. Like I remember getting that question when people were like, oh, Rob, was it like fighting the UFC? And I'm like, listen, man, I could have five people watching or five million. It makes no difference. Like I just, it doesn't, big crowds never intimidated me. It's just more, um, I think, familiarity. And I think my fight could, I, I think being confident in front of a crowd is one thing. Being confident to deliver something you've never done before is a very different, it's a skill. And I think that's something you have to hone, something you have to perfect. You don't, you don't get good at something overnight, even if you're good at something else. Anything you do requires a lot of practice. And I think that's true for, I mean, what, is, what are the odds that someone's going to walk in their first jiu-jitsu class and be great at jiu-jitsu, right? <laughs> even if you're very talented, you're still going to suck. <laughs> you know, you're not going to be good your first class. So I think that's, that's true for everything. I think... Maybe I was a little overconfident. I could have like spent more time practicing. I think the problem too was like I'm I'm the last two months or last month maybe it's probably been the busiest month of my life. Like I'm working twelve hour days, sometimes fifteen. I'm doing a, I'm doing a lot right now. I spend my day in front of a computer. So how do you practice and focus when you're doing all that? So the timing wasn't great. God, I probably could have practiced more. I guess. But I'm happy, man. Like, I'm not upset about it. I'm whatever comes, comes. Like, I'm perfectly happy with whatever. I know I can get better at anything I put my mind into. And I'm very, very confident about that. I don't have any insecurities about, oh, I can't do this. Like, I, I know myself. Like, if I get my head into something, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm going to do it wrong. There's, I, I truly believe that. I believe in the point of delusion. Like, I think if I put my mind into something, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm going to get good at it. So everything, you know, that's that carried out. Is there anything, Robert, is there anything that didn't go in the speech, in your TEDx speech, that in hindsight, if you were to give the speech today, that you would add, you would have added or anything you might have subtracted? I think I made some changes to the closing of the speech. I think I would have changed some things in the body of the speech. I think they were poorly delivered. Um, the closing of the speech, I think, I think it was, you have to memorize that last paragraph. And I did, and I, I just, I was just winking it and it wasn't a great delivery. I, I suspect my body language. I look down a lot when I talk because I'm thinking and I look down when I think. And when you're a speaker, you're supposed to do this and talk to people and look them in the eye. And that's good public speaking. I, when I see that, I just, I see a good act. I see, I see acting. I don't see, I don't see speech. I see acting. And I, I, it's very difficult for me to do that because the second I start doing that, I start focusing on how I feel like a phony. <laughs> it's like more me calling myself a phony in my head the whole time. Like, Rob, you're such a fucking phony. So for me, it is very difficult for me to do these things because it's not, it is not something, it doesn't feel genuine. I guess that's right. Yeah, it's interesting for people who've never actually given a public speech. You, you know, you, you have speakers that they will do everything right technically, right? They know this hand gesture that fits what they're saying, and they, they look to the left, they look to the right, they look straight ahead, and, and they've got, you know, they've written the, the, this, this awesome speech, and these and, and yet, it just seems so robotic and mechanical. It, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it's not as compelling. It doesn't grab you. Then you've got people that, 
are technically kind of like reminds me of John Jones. John Jones, I say this to people, John Jones is arguably the greatest mixed martial artist of all time inside the cage, right? You could, we could argue, is it Khabib? Is it GSP? Is it him? Whatever. We could make that argument. But he's arguably the best ever. And if you watch John Jones, it's a bunch, technically, it's a bunch of what not to do. You would never gather like a hundred students around and be like, this is your foot movement. This is your head movement. Do this. John Jones is a, is a freak. He is a unique freak. He's got, you know, he's got a great mindset. He's an incredible athlete. He's daring. He's brave. He's got, he's blessed with length that you can't teach. And it's like, technically it's like, oh my gosh, let's, let's put in a John Jones video. Well, you shouldn't do that, that, that. Your good coaches teach you. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. But guess what? It works. It works. And the same thing with speaking. You have people that are technically phenomenal. They've been doing it for years. They go to Toastmasters and they're like, they're nailing all the techniques that are taught in all the good books. And you're just like, eh. Then you get somebody up there that's just so authentic, so raw. The story is so great. They, 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 they create empathy and you're just dialed in and you're like, you're, you, you follow them for 15 minutes and time stands still. So it, it is an interesting thing being up there where, like you said, it's interesting, Robert, both you and I, before our TEDx's, wrestled and grappled with the fact that this is a scripted speech because you don't want to do a completely unscripted TEDx or TED speech. That is suicide. And the organizers, rightfully so, not allow it, right? They have to know what are you going to say on our stage? You're, you're representing our brand, right? You're, I mean, so, so you can't do it unscripted, but then the, the scripted is like, oh my gosh, it's like, you know, so so there's that dance between how much scripted, how much unscripted, preparing so that, you know, you don't memorize every single word. Like, you don't want to do a verbatim speech. I mean, you don't want to be like, okay, I wrote 2,000 words, and I'm going to go up there and give my speech verbatim. A president of the United States might do that, right? A politician would do that. A head of a Fortune 500 company would probably do that. But that's not... That's not from the heart, like you said, for people like us that are especially from the fight sports where it's like, be your true, authentic self, be your, and like, no, that just feels like, it feels gross, right? So that, it's interesting. That was something like an 800 pound gorilla for you and for me, where it's like, you're sitting there reading and you're like, okay, how do I not sound robotic? How do I read this, memorize this thing and not sound robotic? But then if you go off script, then if you go off script, Let's say you dare to be in the moment and you dare to go off script. The The danger there is when you're on the TEDx stage and it's live and they say, go, please welcome to the stage, Robert Drysdale, Frank Forza. Once they say go, you got one take. There is no, this is not Hollywood. There is no take two, take three, take four, fumbled my line. They can edit some things out. They can, but by and large, if you mess it up, it's just messed up. So there's a danger if we dare to go off script with that. But but let, let, let me let me say this, Robert, um, as we wind down here. I know we're getting at the end, Noah. And I want to let Noah get a chance to ask a question. One final thing, Rob. What do you – you kind of alluded to this, but what do you – what would be an ideal outcome or impact? What would make you happy to as a result of that TEDx speech? Would, would it be people reaching out to you? What would – what, what would make, I know that you don't always care as much about 
what other people think, but still this, that speech could change your life or shift your life in ways we're not even aware of. It can people from, I mean, I've had people from Turkey and Ireland and other places reach out to me. They find me, they find me via email. Sometimes they become clients. Sometimes they just, you know, whatever they just, they make you feel good and say, whatever, what, what in an ideal world, what would you, what would the impact of that speech be? I don't know, man. That's a good question. Um, I think, look, when I, when I got into the, the documentary, the book thing, everyone's asking me, right? Like, why, why are you doing this? Right. I think some of it was, some of it was my own, some of it, I like history. Some of it is perhaps vanity. But I also wanted people to know their history. Like, I think these things all coexist. They're not mutually exclusive. I like, I wanted people to pick up a history book and, like, understand where we come from, for example. With the speak, I think it's not so different. Like, I like the challenge. Perhaps there's a degree of vanity. I like, but I, I would like people to maybe learn something and go, okay, I never thought of it like that. And maybe give these things some thought. Because what I see I used to be able, like when I was younger, I used to think that the biggest problem in the world was 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 poverty, right? Or and then I started thinking, oh, you know, perhaps it's human rights, or perhaps it's, you know, um, you know, I, whatever the world's problem. You, you think about what are the biggest problems in the world, and you start thinking about these problems, right? I think the biggest problem we have today is like I, I see that people are obsessed with with success, and they don't even know what success means. Like you see people like really striving so hard to be rich and famous. And then every rich and famous person I speak to, and I know many of them, they all tell me the same thing. They're like, I don't feel great. <laughs> like I'm not that happy, you know? They don't say it, but they say it, you know? So I'm thinking, okay, if someone who's a billionaire doesn't feel like they've accomplished enough and they have enough, if I become a millionaire with an M, Right, M as in monkey, not B as in bull. How? What makes you think that I, as competitive as I am, I'm going to feel any better than I do now? Like it's it's not going to make me feel better. And I'm getting that from people who have billions, and they're basically saying exactly that. And I've met these people, and then I've met people who have won way more than me in jujitsu and MMA, and same thing. So I'm thinking, all right, clearly, you know, that's not it, right? So what is it? So that's the question. And I think that for everyone, it is a different answer. I can't tell you what answer is the right one for you. I can maybe what's what kind of works for me. I was um, I was I recently read a book by uh, Harold Bloom. I think he passed away recently. He's a, he's a Yale literary critic, right? And it's called, the book is called Take Arms Against the Sea of Troubles, right? He gets that soliloquy from, from Hamlet. And, and he's basically, you know, he, he's basically arguing the book using literature as a means of fighting nihilism. And I thought, man, that's a, way, a really good way to put it because we all deal with this. Everyone's dealing with like questions of existence, whether you realize it or not. Everyone's got a different answer. For him, it was reading. It was reading high literature, reading the classics. He's in his life reading Shakespeare and John Milton, right? For him, that was the answer. For some people, it was music. Like, I remember when I saw an interview with Ozzy Osbourne when he was describing himself as a teenager, and he listened to the Beatles for the first time. 
And he remembered thinking to himself, that's it. Music is the way out. And for Ozzy Osbourne, it became music. For some people, it's jujitsu. For some people, it's making money. For some people, you know. But you need to understand that whatever that you're chasing, you got to give it some thought. Is this what really going to satisfy me? Like, I, I, I find satisfaction in teaching class. I like reading. I like writing. I like music. These are the things that make me happy. If anything comes from them, there are side effects of my passion, but they're not. I don't think that chasing fame and money are going to make me feel better about myself is what I'm saying. And I could be saying this because maybe I missed the, I lost my ship to be a UFC champion and make millions. Maybe that's why I'm saying this could be, but observing champions like I have being around them and the rich people, like I've been around rich people. I don't think that's the answer. Um, really quick. Cause I, you told this story on a previous podcast you and I shot I encouraged you to put it in this TEDx talk. I encouraged you. You did not. I told you, I had it in one of your original drafts of the speech. You took it out. Um, but tell us really quick, because this ties in to this theme of insatiability. Um, tell us the story, the Frank Mir story of the fisherman, really quick. Tell us, tell us that story. You, you, you and Frank, Frank Mir, the former UFC champion. Tell us the, 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 the sort of the whatever the metaphor, the paradox of the, 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 the fisherman story. Tell us that. So you and Frank, you and Frank, I'll set it up. You and Frank are sitting around and Frank tells this story. Okay. Um, I told this story recently. I don't remember what it was. It was a different pocket. Might have, I don't remember what it was, but so story goes, the fisherman, you know, he's doing his thing, right? And the rich businessman is just, you know, he's in Cancun on vacation or whatever. She walks up to the fisherman and he goes, you know, how, how, how much do you fish every day? Like, how long do you fish for? And he goes, ah, about a couple hours. Like, really? How, how much fish do you catch? He's like, about two. And he goes, okay, so what do you do with them? I take one home, take the other one to the market, and I'll trade for whatever I need. I was like, really? That's it? I'm like, yeah. Why don't you fish more? I'm like, why would I do that? Well, you fish more, you can, you know, you can catch more fish. And why would I do that? Well, you can go to the market and trade for new things and maybe sell it and make some money. Well, why would I do that? Oh, well, if you have money, you can buy more rods and you can fish even more fish. Why would I do that? Well, more fish, you make more money, and then you can buy a boat. And then if you make more money after that, you can buy many boats and you can start a business that sells fish for the whole, for the whole world. Why would I do that? Well, if you become really rich, then you can sit around and fish all day. That's the, the moral of the story. Like it's, uh, I think there's, um, I, I think I mentioned this in the talk. I, I got this, it's just, this is from, you know, from Hamilton. You're chasing shadow. You know, that's, um, that's what I call it. You're chasing a shadow. You're not going to catch up to it. Yeah. I love that story. Noah, we're, we're winding down here. I'm so sorry. We got, we got wrapped up because we, him and I bonded and did this TEDx thing. Uh, this, Went through that TEDx experience together. You've been sitting patiently. Any, any final thoughts, Noah? Any final question from you, my friend? Um, in the four years when I was serving active duty in the Marine Corps, I got exposure to um, a bit of a philosophy in the Corps where um, at every rank, uh, we were assigned reading, recommended reading to do as part of our development of Marines. 
And the reading list is different for officers and for enlisted. However, um, it was very insightful to me. Recently, we had a Navy SEAL on the on the podcast, and he um, he he expressed something that I found very fascinating with how they develop Navy SEALs in their buds during Hell Week and and beyond. He said that um, individual individual instructors were cautioned against doing going and doing taking unilateral actions on their students. And instead, what he said to do was to trust in the curriculum of uh, the making of a Navy SEAL because that's what will produce. That's what we want. Trust in and let the let the system work itself. My question for you is, where does the study of Sparta and Stoicism fit in the curriculum of a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioner? And have you thought through at the various belt levels how there are different lessons as they apply to the ranks? Good question. Um, I think the rank thing is just arbitrary. Like there's, there's no such thing as we, we put it like we cut it very, you know, purple, brown, but it's at the end of the day. I, I, I'm not one of those. I used to believe that, you know, by the time you get a black, boy, you're going to be a better human being. I've seen the opposite. We'll get worse. They, they do, they train jujitsu. They train MMA enough and they become worse. I've seen both. So I don't believe that is a, it's a, it's, you know, there's certainly evolution in life. There ought to be, but belts don't necessarily represent that evolution, even though in theory they do. But I think, you know, you can, you can have, I, I think you can have a Spartan mindset. You, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with pursuing and achieving, but you know, at some point you have to acknowledge that, it is the pursuit that the piece is in the pursuit, not in the end of the pursuit, right? I think that's where the the concept of you know more fati comes in again. You're not gonna it's you're pursuing for pursuing sake. Like the hard work is the reward. Like I told my students, you know, you're not gonna. That's where you find satisfaction in then pursuing. Like when you're when you're competitive, that's what the, the, it's pursuing that is the reward. There's no way around that, and that's where you find your peace. You're not gonna, you know, at the end of it, at the end of the, there's no such thing as happy ending one at the end of the rainbow, man. Like that's a myth, you know. So, I, that's the that's my like again, like that's my solution to the problem. I think that the, the accepting that you know you're not going to achieve all your goals is a very important lesson. You're not going to achieve all of them. But also, you know, taking pleasure in the challenges that you are facing immediately, what is immediately in front of you. And, you know, at the end of the day, being proud of who you are. Like, you know, I maybe I didn't achieve everything I wanted, but, you know, shit, that was a good life. You know, I live well. Like, I, I do what I love. I'm surrounded by a lot of people. The, sh- the, the, the good people gave me tons of good moments. The shitty people taught me a lot of important lessons, and I'm thankful for those, too. And you take the good and the bad, and they're two sides of the same coin. Thank you. Frank, do you have anything? This is just me. Like, no, who knows, man? Like, everyone's got a different approach to these things. So I, I don't think that my interpretation is better or it's just – it's how I that, that's it. all. That's all it is, I that, that that's my life prism too. It's just, you know, what's what's the best Robert Drysdale's got for us today? It's a look at your journey. Nobody is sitting here saying, 
the world, you know, needs to do this. We need to impose this on everybody. We're just, we're giving uh, our perspective, but you are a very thoughtful guy, Robert. You're a deep thinker. You've been in the trenches for a long time. And, and uh, I, I always like hearing your opinions, even when we don't agree. I, I just, I like hearing your opinions. Uh, you are sincere. You are, um, you are authentic. And I hope people out there that TEDx talk will be up in a couple of months. I know it's going to be all over. Follow Robert Drysdale on Instagram. And I'm sure, you know, Robert's Instagram, Noah's Instagram, my Instagram, Frank Forza, you'll uh, you'll find when when that TEDx talk is up, we will uh, we will give everybody a heads up on social media. So, gentlemen, there's some NFL football on Robert. It's great having you on. Of course, we're going to have you on again at some point in the months ahead. Uh, I'm going to be spending a lot more time in Vegas. So let's let's uh, let's do more podcasts. Noah, have a great uh, rest of the day, gentlemen. I'll see you guys soon. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Bye, guys. Take care, Frank. That's it for today's episode of Everyman BJJ. Thanks for listening. Look for new episodes of Everyman BJJ every week, wherever you get your podcast or at everymanbjj.com.